the way that I define like physical restriction is not eating enough for your energy needs mm-hmm. and like under eating calorically emotional restriction it can be applied two ways the way I was referencing it is you're allowing yourself to maybe eat enough calorically but you're not eating you're only eating your safe foods or you're eating a brownie and then you're beating yourself up for eating that brownie and saying like oh I'm going to be quote-unquote good or better tomorrow but it can also more broadly applied like a lot of folks with anorexia orthorexia um, and some of the other eating disorders will engage with their life and again not everyone but in a similar way to the way they engage with food so some people who restrict well food will also restrict their emotions their relationships um, money some people the anorexia can become very uh, like obsessive about saving money and again not everyone but it's just interesting to see the correlation there sometimes Welcome to Let's Thrive the Podcast, a place for holistic storytelling with none of the BS and a whole lot of fun. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and my mission is to interview guests that inspire, educate, and empower you to live your best life. In these stories, you'll see a part of your own journey reflected in theirs and learn to grow from it. And with that said, let's thrive. Welcome back to Let's Thrive the Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and for anyone new around here, welcome. Besides being the host and self-proclaimed holistic storyteller of this podcast, I'm also just like a lot of you probably listening right now. Uh, Growing up, I was exposed to diet culture early on, and for nearly all of my teen years, those horrible high school years, I struggled with disordered eating, with body image, diet culture, all that bullshit. And it wasn't until I was about 18, kind of starting on my own path, that I realized what orthorexia was, which was like a whole new ballpark when it came to my struggles with food and exercise and body image. And I mean, back then, this concept blew my mind. And then I'd say for probably the past two years, I'm 20 now, I've been trying to just fully unpack what orthorexia means, what it looks like for me, and how to recover from that mindset of obsessive health. And it hasn't been easy, but wow, the progress I've made is unreal. And I'm not saying that to be like overly confident, cocky. I still have a lot to do in terms of recovery, I guess. But I just feel so much more like myself, I guess. You know, like I haven't felt this way since I was a kid. And anyone that knows me like on a personal basis, who's known me since I was a kid, could maybe see this, but like, it's just odd. I don't know how to describe it. Like my personality, my energy, it's like I've reconnected with that inner child. And not in like an immature childish way. I just mean that I'm not a robot anymore, like emotionless and just a a slave to the eating disorder thoughts in my mind. So sorry, that was a side tangent. (laughs) Um, But it's just why I'm so passionate about having these conversations. And I wanted you guys to see that and understand that I'm not just having these to have these. Like they're things that have actually affected my life and I'm sure have affected either your life or someone you know. And I just want to open the door to these conversations so that if you're struggling with these things, you can recognize that. 
Or maybe you recognize it in someone else in your life, and that can be just as important. The road to recovery, to change, to a more fulfilling life starts with acknowledgement. I mean, you can't fix something if you don't know it's broken. Um, and that's why today's guest, Jennifer Rowland, is just ooh, spot on for this topic because she is here to blow your mind, just expose you to this culture, this issue, and just really like blow that door wide open for discussion. She is an expert in the field of eating disorders, and I'm just so grateful she took time to come on the pod and discuss all things orthorexia and ED recovery. She is an eating disorder therapist. She is the founder of the Eating Disorder Center Work for Virtual Recovery Coaching and has a book coming up, is an author, a speaker, and has had her own journey with it as well. Now, some notes on the episode itself. It may be a little quiet. Excuse the audio. You know, Zoom doesn't always comply. And then I also want to say, some of the things that we discuss in here may not resonate with you. Or more importantly, or I guess more better stated, (laughs) they might resonate with you, but they might make you highly uncomfortable. So for instance, we're discussing orthorexia. And it can get tricky to discuss orthorexia because it's seen as this obsession with health. However, it can get tricky in this space that many of us are in. When you actually have health conditions prohibiting you from going all in. Or of letting go completely of these fear foods and of the control with health. Do you see what I mean? So I even found myself getting defensive at times. Not, you know, I wouldn't be defensive towards her, but just in my mind thinking like, I don't know about that. Because I'm someone with my own, you know, I've had autoimmune issues, thyroid stuff, liver things. And I'm just someone who I just can't go out and just eat these foods. Or could I? Like, that's the question. I know my body will actually reject certain foods and I will find myself laying on the floor in pain if I eat certain foods. So it's just like a weird mental construct, right, of can you recover from orthorexia while having these restrictions that are in place not because of... See, I don't even know. I'm losing my words here because I don't know. I don't know. You know, am I biased? So anyway... If you're listening to this episode and you start to feel uncomfortable or defensive about something, that is so good. That means that there's something there that you need to think about, acknowledge, just kind of dive a little bit deeper and like, why is that upsetting you? Uh, So I just wanted to put that out there because I know that can be a turnoff sometimes, but I just really urge you to listen through because I guarantee you, like, you might have this amazing revelation that just changes your life. Let's hope so, right? (laughs) Uh, So besides that, this episode is just full of so much good. We debunk common myths in the eating disorder realm. So what an eating disorder looks like or that feeling or like just the how the media fuels that not sick enough mindset, which I'm sure some of you have seen on Instagram. Then once more, just how diet culture and specifically the media that promotes it influences us. So this is when we discuss how orthorexia gets downplayed as just quote-unquote healthy and how it can hide these negative habits and the obsession of clean eating in our society. So Jennifer also explains just basically what orthorexia is and how to recognize it 
And then in the more broad sense of eating disorders, she explains from her background, you know, in psychology and as a therapist for this, why an eating disorder may start. And surprisingly, it's actually both genetic and environmental, which I found fascinating. Like, thanks, fam. You set me up for a successful life. No, I'm joking. Joking. (laughs) But it's just neat to see, like, this different perception mindset uh, on it. So then this leads us into a discussion on control and how that correlates to eating disorders uh, and what it actually... So this was a neat point that Jennifer brought up about how eating disorders seem to be a means for control. A lot of us with like OCD tendencies kind of develop them. But in reality, um, an eating disorder actually makes us lose control of so many other aspects. So that was a neat thing we touch on. Uh, And then lastly, we wrap it up with this topic on opposite action and how that works in recovery, as well as some other skills that you can apply in recovery just to help you out. And keep in mind, you do not have to have a full-blown quote-unquote, eating disorder to listen to this episode or to apply these to your life. I swear to God, everybody has disordered eating habits in their life. And sometimes they're not, you know, really affecting you, I guess, but other times they are. And that goes back to what we discussed in the beginning about how there isn't a specific look, there isn't really even a specific label for what an eating disorder is. Like, it is so unique to each of us. So please listen with an open mind. And even if you only are doing... (laughs) one of these, you know, habits that we discuss in here, like, that's okay. You can still recover from that habit if it's infringing on your life. So, last word of advice I'll give there. There's just so many revelations to be had in this episode, practical tips, action steps you can take after listening, and remember, if you start to get defensive or uncomfortable about anything we discuss, consider what that may mean for you. Is there a truth or something you're maybe hiding from is the question I'll leave you with. I'm right there with you. I'm struggling through this. A lot of us are, and this work can be hard. So if you ever need support or just a chat, I will do my best, okay? My DMs are open. You can find me at Emily Feichels. I am so, just so happy to connect with you at any chance. Um, You need me, so just remember that. And if you want to follow along with Jennifer and just more of her advice and wisdom, she is on Instagram at Jennifer underscore Roland and everything will be linked below as well as her website and her services that she offers. So without further ado, let's begin. I love that. Yeah. And your work is just truly, you know, phenomenal to follow. There's a lot of noise out there, but your your work is a, you know, good source of education on the topic. So I'd like to start out with actually a question about, you know, when it comes to eating disorders or eating disorder recovery, what's a, you know, common misconception that you see, you hear about, you know, either or the eating disorder itself or the recovery process that you would just like to, you know, touch on and let people know that it might not, you know, be all the truth that they think it to be. So there's a lot of misconceptions, but I think the one that bugs me the most is this idea of you can tell how much somebody is struggling based on their weight and that all folks with eating disorders look visibly emaciated, that they're typically young Caucasian females. And while definitely there are young emaciated Caucasian females with eating disorders, 
the reality is that they don't discriminate so they can impact people of all shapes and sizes and colors and you know socioeconomic status and ages and so I think this myth of what someone with an eating disorder looks like, quote unquote, prevents a lot of people from getting help and just fuels that not sick enough eating disorder mindset for people. Oh, I think that's so true. And I, you know, at least in my opinion, when I started to recover and more so became aware, you know, of myself and what I was doing, my habits and everything, I was able to pick up on it a lot more in other people. And it is interesting to see how many people where you know the thought doesn't even cross their mind or yeah they just don't think it's serious enough uh which is you know sad and scary because it really does it it doesn't do anybody any good you know to live in that mindset of not quote-unquote sick enough or not enough to be diagnosed with something so i i think that is a you know big one and something to work through um you know and then i wanted to ask on that same thought what are some ways that you see, you know, disordered eating thoughts, habits, or tendencies being promoted in the current culture, you know, whether that's by the media, by people in general, just to give people some ideas of, you know, ways they might be exposed to this type of content, whether they realize it or not? I think it's everywhere. So I picture diet culture as like, if we were fish, it would be the water that we live in that's like kind of you know, polluted or infested, but like we're so used to it that we don't know anything different. That's kind of how I view it. And I think the media does a very horrific job of teaching us about how to relate to food, our bodies and our weight from, you know, people on TikTok who are all promoting like these heavy workout plans, these very like body focused, um, you know, profiles and people who are talking about like shed those x pounds or tone this up and all of that i think there's also this like wellness culture now where orthorexia is being almost like heralded and praised and unfortunately a lot of people i think who suffer from orthorexia are now nutrition professionals promoting their brand of disordered eating to other folks and so we're hearing all the time about you know different things and having to make everything kind of like a quote-unquote healthified version. And so I think that only enables people's eating disorders because they're like, well, if everyone else can intermittently fast or, you know, like starve themselves or only eat quote-unquote clean, then why is this a problem for me and why do I have to change it? Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, people that know my story, I'm still, you know, I, I, I always admit to the fact that I am still recovering. There's still things I learn every single day. But the moment I think I really woke up from everything was the moment I realized what orthorexia was because that blew my mind. You know, I was in a stage where I knew I wasn't anorexic anymore and I wasn't anything else, but orthorexic, you know, orthorexia, that was something that I'd never heard before. And once I learned about it, I realized, oh, I'm just in a whole new level of this. So could we talk on that a bit? Like, Could you explain a bit more about what it is, maybe some things to look out for about it, just to give anyone that was like me an idea of it's a real thing and it's a real struggle and it's still disordered eating, just kind of in a new disguised manner, I'd say. Absolutely. Um, And actually, one of my colleagues, who's my good friend, Dr. Colleen Reichman, talks about orthorexia being like you're still in a cage, but it's like wallpaper, so it looks better. I thought that was a great analogy. 
Um, so my eating disorder actually started as orthorexia and like many, I didn't think it was a problem and I was very praised by other people. And then eventually it morphed into like anorexia, but still with orthorexia rules. Um, and I think it's so common to be in your experience um, as well as like mine where again, mine started as orthorexia, morphed to anorexia, and then in recovery became fitness obsession where I thought I was doing well. But again, that was my secondary cage that was wallpapered. Um, so orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with so-called healthy eating. And it is seen as somebody who is preoccupied with this idea of health foods. Often there's a lot of rigidity and food rules. So it's like, I know for myself, it was like, you know, I can't touch white bread. Like white bread is like basically the devil. And I was so afraid of white bread, which feels so ridiculous to me now, but it was all of these things. Like I can only eat quote unquote lean proteins and, and all of these rules. And then if a rule is broken, there's intense guilt, anxiety. Um, some people with orthorexia will go as far as I've had clients who are like making their own yogurt because they don't trust what's in the store. Um, and it can really impact social functioning as well. So for me, like I remember being invited to a cookout and I brought my own like salmon and rice. Like that's not a normal thing to do to like bring your own Tupperware dinner to like a backyard barbecue, right? Um, and so yeah, the rigidity, lack of flexibility, this sense of morality around food that like I'm better than other people because I eat this way. If I eat this way, I am right and I am good and my day is fine. Um, so unlike anorexia, traditionally people with anorexia are not showing their meals on Instagram, being like, unless they're like in recovery or it's a recovery account. They're not like, ooh, look at what I ate. But people with orthorexia are the people often, and I did this myself, being like, look at my quinoa bowl and how beautiful it is and look at my smoothie. And so to the external world, they're a picture of health, but internally it's this constant obsession um, that can create a lot of havoc on people's lives. And is that where you'd see maybe the introduction of something like food fears or, you know, obsessing over ingredients and all that type of, you know, behaviors that sometimes are, you know, normalized by modern, you know, modern media? Absolutely. So with anorexia, and again, everyone's eating disorder is unique and different. Like I have folks with anorexia who you know, can eat whatever kind of food they want, but they really heavily restrict the portions, right? So there's no one set way. But traditionally with anorexia, it's more focused on food quantity and like calories versus food quality. Whereas with orthorexia, the focus is more, and again, like you said, what's hyped in the media of, oh, you want a nutrition label where like it's only a few ingredients. And so really focusing less on calories per se, although that can be part of it still, I know it was part of mine. And also looking at like these perfect quote unquote healthy foods that don't have a lot of ingredients, like being afraid of processed foods. So those are very common symptoms that we see. And then there is a lot of justification and denial often for people who are struggling. And so when you see these cases, you know, whether it is orthorexia, anorexia, or any other, you know, variety of it, you know, what are some common factors, I suppose, you see that cause people to go into this lifestyle? You know, I know everyone's different. Everyone has their own reason, but are there some major, you know, overall umbrella reasons that you see people really driven towards these tendencies and, you know, these kind of lifestyles they create for themselves? 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it as the perfect storm of factors that come together. We talk about how genetic genetics often load the gun and then the environment pulls the trigger. So there's often, not always, but often a genetic underpinning for people. Maybe there are folks in their family who maybe didn't even get diagnosed, but who struggled like a grandmother, an aunt, or an uncle, or someone. And then there's some temperamental traits that some folks have, which could be you know, for anorexia, kind of harm avoidance, you know, people pleasing, perfectionism. Some of those are common traits like rigidity, black and white thinking. Also past trauma histories can come into play here as well. And just also something I see that's very common is a very harsh inner critic, not just as it relates to food, but often in general for folks who struggle with eating disorders. I mean, you practically explained me right there. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, you know, and I always just explain too this idea, and I know you've written about it before, and we can dive into it, but also like the sense of control too, and what you were saying, you know, a few of the things there all relate to me, but also that sense of need for control. And you know, mine started out. I was young, and I just lost my mom to cancer. So mine started out, I think, as orthorexia too, where this obsession with being healthy and. I went to media such as Pinterest and, you know, 17 magazine for my health advice. Not a good place to do that, obviously. And that just kind of is what started my spiral into that entire world of it. And, I, you know, during it, I couldn't see what was causing it, why I was acting this way. And looking back now as I'm healing and recovering, you know, day by day, I can see how much of it stemmed from a want to control. You know, I wanted to control my health and thus, you know, control death, so to speak, you know, I was just so afraid of being quote unquote unhealthy. And so how have you seen like that correlation between control and I mean, those other temperaments that you explained too, but also like this idea of we want control, we need to control our situations. How does that play into this all too? That's such a common situation that you're describing with people, again, who feel, I think, Everyone, in my opinion, wants to feel a sense of agency and control in their life. But particularly for people with high anxiety and people who've experienced situations that felt very out of their control, whether it's the death of a loved one, you know, a past trauma. Um, some people, I have multiple folks with mood disorders, so their mood feels very out of control. One day it's up, the next week it's down. Um, and so often food and weight become those external things that people feel like if I can eat a certain way, if I, my body can look a certain way, then I get this false sense of control. Um, and I have definitely had a couple clients who have very similar situations, the little that you've just described of losing. Um, I had a client who lost her mom who became very anxious about health and it really presented as orthorexia for her. So you're definitely not alone in that at all. Well, yeah. And I mean, when you work with these people that have it, is there a certain, you know, mindset shift or practice to do to really learn to let go of that control? Because we all hear it, you know, let go of the control. Like we all know it, it's kind of seems like common sense, but it's not really that hard when you don't know, you know, it's kind of like jumping off a cliff and not knowing what's underneath. You can't just let go of control sometimes. So is there anything you do with your clients to, you know, deepen that practice, just really help them get through that? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of things. I think one, making like a DBT pro con list of their eating disorder and saying like, okay, I want you to list all the ways it feels helpful. And maybe one is it gives me that false sense of control. And then I want you to list all the ways that it's impacting your life. And I remember one client in the impacting her life category put reduced life experiences. Like she wasn't able to be fully present. And so then we go through each list, we write short-term or long-term next to each one, and then we tally them. And I've never had a client who comes out on the side of the eating disorder winning in that scenario. And so first off, it's looking at, like, I don't know how familiar you are with DBT, but this idea of radical acceptance that like none of us are completely in control, that that's a fallacy. Um, and being able to sit with and tolerate that discomfort. And then also looking at what are some healthier ways I can feel empowered in my life? Like, what do I actually have control over that is in alignment with my true values, which is not going to be my eating disorder, right? Which you and I know that the more you dive into an eating disorder, the less in control you actually are. So it's really a false sense of control. So helping people to feel more empowered in their life and maybe that setting boundaries with difficult people, like helping them to be assertive. Um, and then also if the person's struggling with orthorexia or even anorexia, but specifically for orthorexia, looking at how are they defining health? And we need to really expand that out for them and starting to challenge those beliefs. Um, and one thing I love to talk about is how Harvard did a study for 80 years of people and mortality rates to see like who lived the longest and why. And they found that the biggest predictor of who lived the longest was social connections. And so it is actually far more helpful to be out with friends, eating a scoop of ice cream, laughing, than to be sitting at home alone with your salad with no dressing, feeling depressed and sad. So realizing that you know, I heard Christy Harrison say that nutrition and exercise are like 10% of our overall picture of health and looking at how you can expand that to include your emotional health, spiritual health, if you're interested in that, you know, relational health. And so trying to challenge those misconceptions. Yeah. And what you were kind of saying there about really analyzing like what makes you happy in life or what makes you generally feel good. I think another big moment in my journey was the moment I realized, look at how quote unquote healthy I'm being, yet I feel like I've, you know, I feel like shit. I'm I'm not thriving right now. There's obviously something going on. And some of that is some health issues I'm, you know, actually working through, diagnosed with. And then a lot of it though was also coming from this extreme stress and obsession and everything that comes along with trying to maintain that, you know, ultra healthy lifestyle in air quotes, because it does like you're missing out on social events and you're stressing about every meal you eat and about your workouts and your body. And we all know what stress does to the body. So it's just, it is very true. Maybe like, you know, taking that step back and understanding like what quality of life looks like to you. And does it really stem from this, you know, food and fitness regime that you're you know, living in. And I'm guilty of that myself. You know, I'm still working through that. But um, I think that is very interesting what you were saying, you know, like just really empowering yourself to look, you know, what's, what could life be like without this in it? Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate your vulnerability and sharing that and being open that you're in recovery, because I know that can be difficult to do. But the last thing I'll say on that point is, I think that 
my eating disorder at times gave me like definitely a false sense of control. But the sicker I got, the less in control and more scared I felt, which is why I would reach out for help. Um, and like I said, my eating disorder showed up in a few different forms and each time it hit that scary out of control point. And now not struggling with that and not focusing or caring, you know, that my stomach isn't flat or like eating what I want. I have to say like, I feel the most empowered and like, I don't love the word in control, but like in control of my actual life. Cause it's like, I'm, again, I'm a normal person. I get upset sometimes, but I'm generally pretty happy. I've been a really fulfilling, like awesome relationship. Someone I want to be with like the rest of my life for the first time. Like I have a beautiful apartment. I have a career I love. I'm writing a book. It's like my life is actually way more in my control than when the thought of going out to eat spiraled me into a panic. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned relationship in there just, you know, a couple hours before we're recording this right now, I recorded with, you know, two of my best friends, you know, they're a couple in a relationship and we discussed how an eating disorder can affect a relationship. And I, you know, I was very blown away, just stunned by, I've never been in a, you know, serious relationship myself, but hearing how, you know, it does impact even, you know, like, I don't know, I, I kind of think about how sometimes I did feel very like selfish, you know, in my ways with an eating disorder. And it was interesting to hear this couple's perspective of, you know, what the, you know, what was going between them. And it was just a new outlook on it, you know, how you can be struggling silently and someone might not even realize and how to open up communication between people. So I think that's like a whole other, you know, thing to it as well as how our eating disorders affect those around us. And I'm sure you see that a lot with your clients too. They probably have relationship issues or things they need to work through. So, you know, what's kind of like been your experience with that? Any advice you have for someone that is seeing this thing, not only, you know, <laughs> impact their life, but those around them as well? Yeah. So eating disorders definitely impact relationships. I mean, first off, they tend to isolate you. The more that you listen to them, they start to become like your everything, your whole relationship. And it's hard to share that with somebody else. Um, and, you know, my clients are very lovely and are at different stages of recovery. And, you know, some of them do have very supportive partners and some of them don't. But I'll just speak for myself. Like when I was at some of the most unwell points in my eating disorder, there was a period where I was in a relationship and I'm pretty sure like I wouldn't hang out with the me back then. Like I was miserable to be around because I was so malnourished. It wasn't my fault, but I was starving. I was cold all the time. I was constantly thinking about food because my body was like, get some food, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't want to go out to do anything. Right. Because I just wanted to be home with my safe foods. And if I went out, I had to bring my food. So it, it really can impact things on so many levels from intimacy because of body shame to your ability to even connect over food with a partner. Um, and it just reminded me of the other day. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the New York times has like a bunch of questions for partners to ask each other, like to fall in love. Um, so, you know, this is way overdue, but just for fun, I was going through some of them with my boyfriend, like we're already in love, we've been together a while, but whatever, um, it's quarantine. And so one of the questions was like, what are three things you guys have in common? Um, and he was like, well, we're both introverts. And then he was like, we both like really good food. And when I say good food, I mean like good quality food, not like morally good food. Um, and 
I don't remember the third one, but it wasn't that important. But my point is like being able to connect with people over food to like enjoy cooking with people to even enjoy like eating what somebody else makes that adds another level of like intimacy that I wouldn't have been able to have before. So I guess my advice would be if you are in a relationship, um, trying to practice some open communication. I know it's really hard, but if you're struggling, trying to ask for what your needs are, because none of us are mind readers, we can't know what's helpful and what's not helpful. And I've had, you know, partners or spouses come into therapy sessions before, and that can be really helpful. Um, you know, and also making sure to reiterate to your loved one that they're not a burden, because that's a big theme I see with my clients is feeling like, well, I'm making everyone miserable, like I'm burdening them with my eating disorder. And it's like, having an eating disorder is no more of a choice than having cancer, in my opinion. Um, and so making sure to express that while you might be frustrated with someone's eating disorder, that you still love them and that they are not a burden. Oh, I love that. And I, I agree. I think that is a key part of the, you know, communicative part too. And then, you know, what you were saying about connecting over food, it's so true. I know it was a while back, you know, I've always still, you know, had a love for baking and cooking throughout my journey. But a while ago, I posted, you know, something about brownies and just, you know, the idea of how fun it was for me to get in the kitchen that day and bake and listen to music and, you know, be with my brother and kind of make it this fun Saturday event. And I had an old friend of mine that I know struggles and she reached out and said how she'd felt inspired to bake. You know, she wanted to bake and kind of have that idea, but she was just so afraid because, you know, her old thoughts were telling her, if you bake, you're going to eat it all and all these things. And it was, you know, very just sad for me to realize that some people do feel that way. And as you said, like food is such a way to connect and there's so much culture in it. And I think diet culture and this, you know, modern world we're living has stolen that in some sense of the, you know, thing. So I just, I really, you know, feel that and coming from a big, you know, I'm Irish, Italian, my family loves to cook and bake and the idea of ever, you know, being afraid of that or giving it up just really hurts, you know, hurts me at a soul level. So I think that is a big thing that a lot of people face that was just, you know, not only lack of communication and social, you know, social interactions, but the lack of that that can occur with food in a good, well-mannered um, environment. So, um, and you mentioned before DBT and I had someone on before, she was talking about DBT and she brought up this idea of opposite action. You know, it was more of a business-minded conversation, but then as I was kind of scrolling your blog the one day, I noticed that you had opposite action in there too. And I know you work with DBT, so could you just kind of go into that a bit? Um, maybe give an idea of what DBT is so people know what we're talking about. And then how opposite action, you know, how you maybe implement that for your clients to use, how the general population could maybe use that to help in their recovery journey, and just give people, you know, another tool to utilize in their recovery. Sure, so I love this tool, and to give you the two-second rundown of DBT, <laughs> um, dialectical basically means that two opposing things can be true at the same time. So it's a synthesis of opposites. So an example might be recovery is really effing hard, and like it's worth it in the end, right? So that's two opposing things can be true. Something can be both hard, and it can be worth it. Um, and so DBT is very like a skills-based approach. 
And the skill opposite action is starting to look at, let's say you have an emotion and we're trying to look at that emotion and say, does that emotion and its intensity fit the facts of a situation? And I'll give you an example of it. Um, and so, and then even if it does fit the facts, we're going to ask ourselves, is acting on that urge helpful? And if it doesn't fit the facts, or even if it does fit the facts, but it's not helpful, then we're going to take an opposite action to our emotional urge. So I'll give you an example. Let's say um, my boyfriend and I got into a fight and let's say it was over something small. I don't know, I'll make something up. Like he posted something on Facebook that rubbed me the wrong way, that had, wasn't about me, but about a topic that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, let's say I was feeling very, very sad and upset um, pretty intensely, and my urge was to skip lunch. Um, so that would be an example of like my level of being sad doesn't really fit the facts of what happened. And even if it did, let's say he did something awful. Let's say he ran out and he cheated on me or something. That, that level of upset would fit those facts. But is skipping my lunch going to be a helpful action in terms of getting me to the life I want, aligned with my values? And so the answer to that is no. And so I'm going to take an opposite action to my emotional urge. So if my urge is to skip lunch, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to go out of my way to make something like maybe a favorite childhood meal or something. I'm going to sit down and like mindfully eat my food. So basically it's looking at again, like eating disorders are going to give you a whole bunch of urges. And the point of that is just to keep themselves alive. So just because we have an urge, even though it can feel so powerful and so all encompassing does not mean that we have to act on it. So through taking opposite actions over time, you will get to the point where you're desensitized and that thing is no longer scary. Kind of like building a muscle almost, you know, to flex and resist those urges. Because I, even as you were explaining that, I can still remember, you know, I, well, obviously I still get them time to time, but the intense feeling that those urges can bring on. And it's, it can be a mental and physical reaction, I feel sometimes. So um, are there any other like, small ways we could kind of implement in our life to combat those urges. You know, you mentioned opposite action, you know, so whether it's some examples or just some ideas for someone to really kind of try for their own own sake of how to combat those urges and, you know, work through them. Sure. So there's another technique called urge surfing. And what we do with urge surfing is this, this idea that um, urges, if we imagine them as kind of like rising, kind of like an ocean wave, and then eventually falling and coming down, often what happens is you're feeling the urge, you're feeling the urge, and it gets to the top where the wave is about to come down, and then you use behavior. So then you get caught in this addiction where you have to use that behavior to bring the urge back down. Whereas if you were able to sit out the urge, urges will naturally rise and fall on their own over time, even if we did nothing. And so it's really effing hard as someone who's been there and works with clients to sit with an urge when it's like at a 10 of intensity. And so that's when we want to employ certain skills like distraction techniques can be a good one. Um, something else to like use part of your brain where you're not focused on it. So there's a ton of distraction techniques, but I personally really like doing things like watching news bloopers on YouTube, like people messing up the news is funny to me. Um, like cute baby animal videos and baby videos on YouTube are good ones too. 
Another skill can be practicing reaching out to people when you're trying to surf that urge. So reaching out to people instead of turning to your eating disorder, I think was so critical in my own recovery. Um, you know, whether that was emailing my therapist or reaching out to a friend, trying to find like somebody that I can talk to, because I think even, even if you don't get a response, just kind of putting it out there brings that healthy part of your brain to the forefront. Um, and something else you can do is practice like dialoguing between you and the part of you that is your eating disorder, like talking back and forth to it can be helpful for some folks as well. So there's a lot of skills, but I think it's also important to remember that it's not going to feel this shitty forever. That when you're first challenging and trying to sit with urges, I remember it like literally felt like I was crawling out of my skin, you know? And it's like, now I can do those things that I was so scared of, like, you know, um, eat a bag of Doritos or whatever it was, um, or, you know, not exercise or whatever, um, and feel fine about it. But that took work and it took time. So realizing that if it was that awful forever, we wouldn't be telling you to challenge it, but that it's eventually going to go down the more and more you challenge it. Do you see that a lot with like binge, binge eating and struggles with that? Because I, I have a friend who, you know, has been working through that and a big thing that she had been working on recently was fighting those urges and just finding, like you said, distraction techniques after, you know, so when she had the urge to, instead of immediately rushing into it, kind of like that wave, you know, peak of the wave moment, uh, just taking time to really figure out what's going on. Am I still hungry? Is this an urge? Whatnot. So I'm just curious, have you seen that play out with clients, patients dealing with that then? Definitely. And I think, like you said, when we're in recovery from binge eating, we're trying to practice putting space between urge and action. So even if somebody could sit with that urge for five minutes and then they still binge, that's still a win. Because again, we're practicing putting a little bit of space and helping that person to feel empowered because especially with binging and um, with purging as well, it can almost feel like you're possessed in that moment for folks who binge. And it can feel like you're totally out of control. And so we also have to be looking at restriction, right? Because I always say we don't want to fight someone's biology. So if they're binging in response to restriction, that's their body trying to get their needs met. But if they're truly fully nourished, they're able to eat all foods, they're not emotionally restricting either, and then they're still binging, that's when we work on applying these skills of trying to put that space between urge and action and getting their needs met in healthier ways. And you mentioned like emotional restricting. Could we talk on that a bit? Because that's something that took me a bit more time to figure out where restricting can go much more beyond just food in a sense. There can be a lot of emotional factors to it as well. So I'm just curious to hear, you know, how you kind of explain that and work through it with clients too. Sure. So the way that I define like physical restriction is not eating enough for your energy needs mm -hmm. and like under eating calorically. Emotional restriction, it can be applied two ways. The way I was referencing it is you're allowing yourself to maybe eat enough calorically, but you're not eating, you're only eating your safe foods or you're eating a brownie and then you're beating yourself up for eating that brownie and saying like, oh, I'm going to be quote unquote good or better tomorrow. But it can also more broadly applied, like a lot of folks with anorexia, orthorexia, um, and some of the other eating disorders will engage with their life. And again, not everyone, but 
in a similar way to the way they engage with food. So some people who restrict, well, food will also restrict their emotions, their relationships, um, money. Some people with anorexia can become very like obsessive about saving money. Um, and again, not everyone, but it's just interesting to see the correlation there sometimes. I never thought of it in the money mindset, but I was, I went through this big phase in my life where I was, uh, you know, a hell to be around when it came to money, uh, kind of, you know, drove my family nuts because of it. And I hadn't ever put those two together, but that is interesting. And, you know, what you said about emotionally restricting even, um, I really feel that. And, you know, more so it goes, like we were saying before about you're not getting all these social experiences. And I feel like missing out on that can just like you're, you're practically restricting yourself from that, those fun, those joyous moments too. So uh, yeah, emotional restriction goes much deeper than, than we probably all realize too. Absolutely. Uh, and so you mentioned before this technique of, you know, kind of talking and chatting with that inner dialogue that's going on in our mind. And I think it's so interesting this idea and you know the fact is that we do have this voice in our mind that is the eating disorder and it kind of comes down to this idea of you know are we listening to it are we talking back to it are we ignoring it so could you just kind of give an explanation of what that inner dialogue is and just really you know how you explain it to people how you suggest they work through it and really work to talk talk with it or not listen at all Definitely. So I kind of like to look at it through a bit of an IFS framework. And what that means is it's this idea that we all have different parts of ourselves. So who I show up like as a therapist, I'm the same person, but it's a different part of me than the part that's a girlfriend, right? And so we all have different parts and they're all there trying to help us and they're all doing jobs. But obviously some of them end up getting in the way through their attempts at help. And the eating disorder part you know, is a part that I think is well-intentioned. It might be trying to protect us. It might be trying to make us feel less anxious or help us to deal with our emotions. But again, we know it's going about it in a really misguided, unhelpful way. So we want to start to separate out that eating disorder part from like the self, your self part, like who you actually are as a person. Um, and to recognize that, you know, just because your eating disorder says something, doesn't mean that you have to act on it. And that's where we get to kind of the mindfulness piece. I posted something the other day, there was a good um, analogy that a therapist had made to starting to view your thoughts as like Instagram ads and that you don't have to like click on it, go to the website, buy the thing, like you can literally just scroll past it. And another analogy is this idea that I've used before of like the eating disorder radio or like the eating disorder horror movie, right? And so when you're really sick, maybe it's like playing full blast in, right in front of you. There's this big screen. It's like gloom and doom. It's very loud. And then maybe as you're recovering, it's more in the corner of the room. You can still hear it. And maybe eventually the volume starts to dim a little bit. But it's like I could have that movie playing in my head and still do the opposite actions, right? It might be really effing hard and terrifying, but that movie is not me. That movie is not Again, it might be a part of me, but it's not all of me. And I, my true self, I have some agency here. Um, so starting to help people to have more of that mindful perspective of like, you are not your thoughts and not all of your thoughts are true or helpful. 
Yeah. And I know I personally, when those thoughts are kind of like you said, full blast radio, they're just blaring in your head. That's all you can think of. I find that if I can do the opposite action, you know, when ride the urge, whatever that, you know, looks like for each person, oftentimes it quiet, you know, it quiets down and it, it sort of helps dim those voices. And I think it's because you're getting that sense of empowerment of like, I did it, you know, like I, I do have some control here. I can not lean into these voices telling me what to do. Um, so I don't know, you know, if that's something that you oftentimes see, you know, like the more you do it, the quieter the voices get, people get a li- you know, a bit more immune to them. Yeah, that's so common. And that's why we tell people to like keep doing the opposite actions as much as possible. Because every time, like it might seem small of like, oh, I'm just going to like skip one snack or, oh, I'll just eat a little bit less at that meal. But you're, if we picture your eating disorder as a seed, you're literally like watering it every time you do that. Um, and so in trying to plant the recovery seed, if we're going to use analogies here, how can you water that? And it's through the opposite actions and eventually it will grow, I don't know, like a fucking tree or something. Um, but you're giving fuel to that eating disorder fire and strengthening it every time you listen to it. Yeah. And what you were saying about the thoughts it got, so I, a big part of my recovery was, uh, you mentioned it in the beginning too, but I really leaned into some more of the more like spiritual aspects. So I'm not too religious, but I really liked this idea of spirit, spirituality and like the form of meditation for me. And it, you know, in that I was taught about how thoughts aren't bad. You know, you can't just ignore every thought that comes into your mind, but just kind of seeing them and having them pass by or float away, you know, like they're in a bubble, they float away. And I think that's kind of, you know, what you were saying about how, like, if these things do come up, it's like seeing them, like the Instagram ad, you, you can see it, you can acknowledge it, but you don't have to follow it. And uh, there's a book I read, The Untethered Soul. And it's pretty, it, you know, it's pretty like spiritual based, but the context of the, you know, differentiating between what thoughts are truly ours, what thoughts are coming in from outside external factors or something like an eating disorder, it was mind blowing. I mean, I listened to it as an audiobook when I would walk and it just, it was the first time that I really think I made that correlation between like, oh yeah, not every thought in my head is actually my own. There's a lot of outside influence coming in here. Absolutely. And I think being able to like label thoughts can be so helpful. And also if people are up for it, a meditation practice and doing mindfulness can be super, super key to help you to be less fused to those thoughts. Yeah. And one of the, you know, the kind of closing things I wanted, we'll do two things here, but, you know, I'm just curious when it comes to recovery, you know, and someone says, I want to do this, I'm ready to, you mentioned it before, but I think boundaries are something that can really come into effect. And as you know, I was interviewing my friends in their relationship earlier, that was something they really had to work on too, because sometimes the people around us don't know what's what we're sensitive to. They don't know, you know, what might impact us negatively. Uh, so I'm just curious, like when it comes to setting boundaries, how do you advise people do that? Um, are there certain circumstances where we should? in certain circumstances where maybe we shouldn't set the boundaries and instead, you know, kind of toughen up a bit to it. I don't know. So I'm just curious to hear like what your thoughts are on that. I think like we talked about before, boundary setting can also be like a muscle and something that is hard for many people, especially people who struggle with 
people pleasing and putting everyone else's needs above their own, which is a lot of my clients. So in order to set boundaries effectively, first off, we have to know what our needs are. So we have to start to tune in, which is something that not a lot of people do and ask like, what do I actually need in this moment? And I think we have to reframe boundaries. Like a lot of people feel guilty for setting them or feel like they're being mean, but boundaries actually help relationships because the alternative, and I've had this actually ironically or funnily to me, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but um, the boyfriend I was referencing when I was very sick that I wasn't fun to be around, um, he also was somebody that I guess at that time I was not comfortable speaking up or voicing my needs. I was in people pleasing mode, which is not surprising. And because of that, I eventually got so resentful that I ended the relationship because I was just so freaking mad because I had never communicated all the little things that were bothering me. And so I learned that in my relationships to protect them, I have to speak up for myself because otherwise I'm going to build resentment and end up having angry feelings towards that person, which I don't want if it's somebody that I really care about. So recognizing that it's okay to say, like, hey, you know, I'm in recovery or I don't diet, like I'd rather not hear about that or it's okay to walk away from that conversation if it's gonna feel too triggering or to hang up the phone or say like, hey, if you talk about that topic, like I'm gonna have to get off the phone, it's just it's too much for me right now. And that can be a step in what we are talking about of like building that healthy sense of empowerment. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, we are not psychic. <laughs> People can not always understand what we're, you know, we might look okay to them, but um, there can be a lot of internal, you know, mental, emotional things going on. So yeah, being, being open about that if, if possible. You know, and the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on is if someone's struggling right now and they want to get help, what are some, you know, ways you would suggest someone go about that? Because uh, you know, we are in a world of social media. There's a lot out there. I've, you know, seen some things that, you know, kind of scare me that, you know, people are promoting themselves as. So I just kind of want to know your outlook insight on what are some resources or, you know, certifications or people that, you know, consumers should be looking for, for help. Yeah. So I'll give you like the two second version of that. I think, if possible, I know it's not always possible, but increasingly with virtual, you can see an eating disorder specialist because a non-eating disorder specialist is often gonna struggle with talking about these topics and may unintentionally put their foot in their mouth just because they don't know anything about this illness. So try to see a specialist if you can, make sure if you can that they're health at every size and they're not gonna be inflicting weight stigma or having fat phobic views. Um, check out what they're writing on their blog. Like if there's any subtle diet culture or they're posting like constant orthorexia looking things on their Instagram, like are they posting examples of like what I call normal eating of like being able to like have a bag of Doritos or go out for cookies or is everything like a healthified version? Um, so that's important to look at. Like are they practicing what they preach? And then I would say in terms of resources, I have a bunch. Um, First off, like they can reach out to our practice. We work with people virtually at the Eating Disorder Center. They can reach out to NIDA. NIDA has a navigator program where you can reach out to their hotline and they'll connect you with people in their area. Additionally, there's COVID-19 eating support right now on Instagram. It's 
every hour or two health at every size clinicians go on and some folks in recovery to eat meals with people. So that's another great free resource. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there are any other ones that I would recommend. Um, yeah, and I would also just say to interview whoever the person is that you select, ask them questions on the phone um, and really try to get into their food philosophy. Like I've even told parents to ask clinicians, like, what would you tell a client if they said, I look fat, you know? So really seeing how the clinician is going to respond to get a sense of where they're at in terms of like their food philosophy and their philosophy about body piece. I love that. I've, I've been there. I had a, you know, therapist for, I mean, I only went a couple times because it wound up not being a match, but, um, you know, I kind of went for the emotional trauma I've been through, but a big part of that is my eating disorder. And, you know, the moment that came up, she just said a few things and they weren't directly diet culture, but even to me, I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) you should not be, (laughs) this isn't right. Um, you know, the, maybe I should be sitting in your seat. But um, yeah, so I just, I really wanted to get your perspective on that because I know it's, it can be tricky. I have a few friends trying to find someone right now. And, um, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions out there of what people, like you said, what they, you know, do they preach, what they practice, all that. So um, I love that. And that you guys are virtual to anyone and everywhere is phenomenal, Um, a huge help there. So thank you. And, you know, where can people find you just for maybe, you know, the day-to-day inspiration, empowerment, and, you know, I, I love following you. You always give me something to think about and make, you know, makes me stop to analyze kind of like a self-check-in. So love for people to find you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so I spend way too much time, but I love it on Instagram. Like I'm not a big fan of like Twitter. I'm never on there, but like Instagram, I'm like, this is fun. So yeah. <laughs> um, they can follow me at Jennifer underscore Roland, Arizon Rock. O-L-L-I-N on Instagram, or they can reach out. We do free 15-minute phone consults with people through our website. It's www.theeatingdisordercenter.com. Wonderful. What an episode. Lots of insight, education, and I think just a really good thinking episode. Let me know, let us know, Jennifer, like tag us both on Instagram. Let us know what you thought about this episode, what resonated, or just message me, her, privately, whatever you need. We're here to support you, and we just really hope that this message connected with the right people. Uh, I appreciate you all so much for listening. Jennifer is on Instagram at Jennifer underscore Roland, and I'm on there at Emily Feichels and at Let's Thrive Podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.